0: So here are the five predictions. Number one, Copernican consumer. Consumers will become the center of their own health universe more than ever before, enabled by sensors, AI, and other technology, as well as services geared toward empowering them. Number two, constricted consumerism. While consumers will become increasingly responsible for their own health and use of healthcare services, they will actually become less and less empowered in the choices they have for care, especially in higher acuity, higher cost situations.
1: Hello, healthcare. You were just hearing from Chris Bevelo, the chief brand officer at Revive, and also the author of Joe Public Doesn't Care About Your Hospital. Chris was discussing his new book, Joe Public 2030, where he and leaders from Geisinger, Intermountain Health, CVS, Johns Hopkins Medicine, and many others got together and discussed what the next 10 years of healthcare strategy are going to look like. We sat down with the Forum for Healthcare Strategists to discuss this book and his predictions. Here's what's coming up next in that conversation. First, we're going to focus on his Team 2030 and how they generated these predictions and validated them. Then we're going to go deep into what those predictions actually are. And with that, I hope you enjoy that conversation and I'm going to hand it over to Chris. Consumer experiences, major disruptors, in AI tech are shaping healthcare for years to come. On Hello Healthcare, we dive deep on these issues with leaders who are driving change. I'm Chris Hemphill, VP of Applied AI at Actium Health, and we hope that these stories will help you to create or demand a better future in healthcare.
0: Chris, thank you for that setup. We're gonna to try to get through this upfront part as quickly as possible. I think, as Chris mentioned, it is really important that you get a chance to understand how this was developed, why it was developed, because that lends validity to I think the things you're gonna hear, and also I think will allow us to have a better, more thorough conversation. So real quickly, where did this come from? It is the 10-year anniversary. And as we approached 2021, we thought, what are we gonna do with the 10-year anniversary of that first book? We've had a couple come out in the series since then. And we thought, heck, it's been 10 years. Why don't we do a 180, look forward 10 years, and see what we can find? We took about three months to develop these predictions. We really started with a blank slate. We did not set out to prove any hypotheses necessarily. And there's one prediction in particular that I can talk to you that that I think proves that point. We picked a team, we called them Team 2030 from Revive. So this was a, a intentionally diverse team in terms of age, experience, gender, race, you name it. We try to create a really, nice collective of folks to think as thinkers and futurists. We poured everything we knew and everything we could find onto a table. It was during COVID, so that table happened to be Miro, if you're familiar with Miro. If you saw a picture of our Miro board, it's kind of nuts, all the different things that were on there. But we just really wanted to get everything out that we could think of related to everything from the marketing of hospitals and health systems all the way up through the industry to even societal trends. I'm gonna talk about some of the resources that we leverage, but the book ends up having more than 260 citations in it. So you can get a feel for how many different things we brought to bear to really support the thinking here. The other thing that's important to note and to give credit to is Rohit Bargava. If you're not familiar with him, he runs a company that puts out predictions in terms of business and society pretty much every year. In 2020, I think it was his last book, non-obvious mega trends. he actually shared the process that his team goes through to look at predictions to start as widely as possible and then call those down. He calls it the haystack method. So we adopted that and we use that, Team 2030 used that to really figure out how do we sort through the 1,001 things that were in front of us to get to the point that you're going to hear about today. I think one of the coolest things about this is we had a chance not only to leverage the super smart people in our agency, but we talked to 22 industry leaders from across healthcare. So for example, we had the privilege of talking to the CEO of Geisinger, the CEO of Henry Ford Health System. We talked to the the head of health investments at Bain Capital. We talked to the head of brand at CVS Health. We talked to some really smart people and their input and their feedback had a lot to do in shaping the predictions you're going to hear, as well as validating a lot of what you're going to hear. We also you know, provide different perspectives because not everybody agreed with where we ended up, and we don't expect all of you to agree either. That's not really the point. The point is to, to drive conversation and debate. But I think, again, it just lends a lot of credibility to what we're about to say. As Chris said, this was not me. I get all the credit because my name's in the book. I had the privilege of working with this amazing team and talking to these amazing people to pull these ideas together. So I think that's really important to emphasize. All right. One last thing, and then we'll get to the predictions. So you're going to hear five. As Chris mentioned, these were the five again that emerged from our process. They're built on 20 foundational trends. So, for example, we didn't set out necessarily to say, what's the future of value based care? right but that is a critical trend we have to understand if we want to understand the next 10 years So we lay out those foundational trends at a very high level in the book it's not a place to go if you want to learn everything you need to know about value-based care or ai but we have enough background in there to understand how these trends will impact the predictions that you're going to hear it's important to know these predictions are not meant to be comprehensive this is not a full picture of 2030 in fact Some of these predictions may feel a little bit contradictory to each other, which makes them interesting as well to think about how they might intersect. But they really are intended to kind of stand on their own. And so, again, our point was, how do we pull this forward to really drive the conversation we want to have and need to have as an industry? Some of these predictions are great. They're going to get you excited. Some are going to make you think, oh, bleep, is that really what's going to happen? It's up to us to make the future we want. And we even if some of these may sound negative or problematic, we got to put that on the table. We got to have that conversation and figure out as individuals, as organizations, and as an industry, where do we want to go? And the last thing I'll say is in each case, all of these predictions are already underway. The question isn't really, will these happen? The question is to what degree will they happen and by when? So here are the five predictions. Number one, Copernican consumer. Consumers will become the center of their own health universe more than ever before, enabled by sensors, AI, and other technology, as well as services geared toward empowering them, leading to profound implications for both consumers and healthcare organizations. Potential results could include a dramatic reduction in the need for primary care clinicians, an entirely new sector devoted to personal health management, true precision medicine combined with health management, and more. All right, so that's the first one. Number two, constricted consumerism. While consumers will become increasingly responsible for their own health and use of healthcare services, they will actually become less and less empowered in the choices they have for care, especially in higher acuity, higher cost situations. While many in the industry will continue to sing the praises of choice, the reality is most consumers will have far fewer choices moving forward, often in ways they might never ever consider or see, all right? Number three, the funnel wars. Today, we tend to consider hospital and health systems as birds of the same feather in terms of business model, with variances based on size, scope of services, for-profit or nonprofit. Moving forward, we could see the splitting of the healthcare system model, with some systems moving even further to the larger, more comprehensive health organizations, others retracting into solely acute care destinations, what one person called the giant ICU on a hill, and others somewhere in the middle, These models may emerge based on core geographic or market differences, such as presence of competitors, plan consolidation, regulation, and dozens of other market forces. Yet the primary area where this transformation will play out is with health, wellness, and the lower acuity care points. That's the top of the funnel, and that's why we call it the funnel wars. All right, number four, the rise of health sex. Challenges to and skepticism of the mainstream medical field and science itself have exploded in the past two years. Because of the pandemic and political tribalism in the US, anti vaxxers, non maskers, and COVID deniers are just the start of an expansion of the distrust of experts, which taken to its potential end could result in multiple health sects, primary schools of medical thought that coalesce around a political or worldview. Imagine mainstreamers who follow the established healthcare point of view, progressives who follow minimal medical intervention combined with complementary and alternative medical solutions or contrarians who deny mainstream medical thought and create their own set of alternative facts on everything from vaccines to childbirth to end of life care. These sects will not only follow the medical thinking that best fits their worldview, they may in fact create their own reality through alternative research, diagnosis and treatment approaches, and models for the delivery of care itself. And finally, disparity dystopia. The COVID-19 pandemic shone an ugly light on the disparities that have plagued the US health care system for decades. Unfortunately, that health gap is more likely than not to expand as the haves gain access to increasingly more expensive medical treatments, health services, and personalized care, while the have-nots will face growing shortages of basic health resources, from clean water and air to physicians and clinicians, rural healthcare, and more. This shift will be compounded by the mental health crisis, which disproportionately affects systemically disadvantaged populations and groups outside traditional healthcare access channels, such as teens. All while those entities that might address these disparities increasingly struggle financially, such as health systems or state and federal governments, and others lack the incentives to focus on this growing issue. All right, so let's go with constricted consumerism. Imagine it's 2030, you're me, a 50-something, working at a great gig with an employer who offers a generous health insurance allowance. Like many companies, mine stopped offering health insurance through work a number of years ago, thanks to changes in how health benefits are considered from a tax standpoint. Now I take my allowance and head out to the market to find insurance on my own. My plan will make me pay through the nose if I use any healthcare outside of my network. And they insist all urgent primary and diagnostic care starts with their own clinicians using their own urgent care clinics and virtual care offerings. From there, if I need more care, my plan will tell me exactly where to go based on whatever is the least expensive option given certain standards of quality. Of course, there really are only two games in town anyway. Like most markets, Minusing provider consolidation so that there are really only two health systems that provide the full continuum of care. And once I engage with the provider for any reason, they fight like mad to keep me within their system for any additional care with automatic referrals and appointment scheduling. Both local systems are included in my network, but my plan typically dictates which I use. Of course, with my $25,000 deductible, I could spend out of pocket for the low cost care I need from places like Dollar General or Amazon. I can remember not too long ago when I had so many more choices for my care, but today, even though I'm spending far more money out of pocket, it feels like there are only a few ways I get to choose. But that's okay. Healthcare has become so complex anyway, who has time to figure out what's best for themselves on their own? Just tell me where to go and I'll go. Welcome to Prediction 2, the world of constricted consumerism. So this is super interesting because this is the one that I said at the beginning, if we had set out to to kind of with a hypothesis and then wanted to prove it and put it in the book, we would have had the opposite answer for consumerism. I have been talking about consumerism so long. My joke is that when I first started doing presentations on it, I used to use a picture of my daughter as a toddler And it was one of those classic pictures where she's in her high chair. She's got spaghetti all over her face. She looks kind of like not happy. And I would say that's what the healthcare consumer feels like when they have to wait an hour to see the doctor or when they pick up a a copy of Golf Digest as 10 years old, or they, they can't even find a place to park, right? Well, the joke about that is that daughter, Callie, just graduated from high school this last summer. So that's how long I've been talking about consumerism. And so the point of this is we've been waiting for the real impact of consumerism to hit for 20 years. And from talking to our experts and the research that we've done, what we're saying is not only do we not expect it, to really hit in ways that that we would want moving forward, particularly related to choice in higher acuity settings, we actually think this could get worse. And so here's some ways to think about this. I've already kind of talked about how long that we've been we've been waiting and waiting. And yes, there's been some incremental change, but when you really dig into it, consumerism has not hit near to the degree that that a lot of people thought it would. One of the great things we heard from the experts we talked to, and this was. This was a new perspective for me was, the reason why consumerism hasn't delivered all the promises that we, we thought it would have is because we're talking about the wrong consumer. When we talk about consumers, we talk about individuals, those of us out in the public receiving care. And the idea was that you know, by spending our own money and having access to more choice and having more information on those choices, we would drive the changes in healthcare that we would want to see to our benefit, more access, lower price, transparency, all those great things. Well, the reason that hasn't come to fruition is because the actual most powerful consumer in healthcare is not individuals. It's those who pay the bill. And we don't pay the bill as much as, as we think we do, right? The biggest payer of healthcare expense in this country is the federal government through Medicaid. It's employers, it's health insurance companies, it's public payers in, in terms of the federal government primarily, who are the ones that are the true customers here. And if that's the case, then it helps us understand why they're the ones that drive the changes that most influence healthcare rather than the individual consumer. It helps explain why I can't drive four hours north to get cheaper cheaper drugs in Canada, why I'm not allowed to do that. It helps explain why we have things like PBMs, which are like incredibly complex, weird things that really aren't here for us. Some of us may benefit in some ways, but they're not for us. Right, And so that was a real, really powerful insight that came through in talking to people. We know that payers are going to be payers. We know insurance companies really try to restrict. That's part of their job, right, is to, to limit costs, and so you see people going through tiers. They're steered. Now you have folks, you know, all of them, all of the major health insurers are integrated in some way in terms of providing care now and in different ways. But of course, you've got the largest health insurer in United also happening to have the largest provider in this country. If you measure health systems in terms of the number of employed doctors, Optum is the largest health system in this country with over 55,000 doctors, right? And so. These folks are really trying to to guide people to their own care before they go to the legacy hospitals and health system. Providers aren't off the hook here. Consolidation certainly limits choices. We all have read about uh, the closing of hospitals in rural areas and the difficulty of having access there. It's true in some inner cities as well. They also, health systems don't always play ball with things like transparency. We see that in people kicking and screaming to have their prices in a transparent way on their websites. Many of them still not doing that, holding out that that will change. And so all of that is really oriented to making it more and more difficult for us as consumers to choose where we want to go. It's going to be chosen for us in, in most cases. And the final point of this is consumerism was always predicated in the idea that we as consumers could act in our own best interests. Well, that assumes we have it, we have access to all the information we have. We understand how the system works. And I think most of us, if you've experienced the healthcare industry in any way as a patient, can speak to the fact that it is very difficult to navigate this on your own. Most consumers are nowhere near equipped in terms of understanding what they need to do to advocate for themselves, to pick the best choices, all of those things. So even if we look to ourselves, it's very similar to how we think about retirement. Most of us are not equipped to invest for ourselves in a smart way, which is why we have financial planners and all of that. So that's kind of the final nail in this coffin, if you will, about why we see consumerism becoming more constricted.
1: First of all, I wanna thank you. We got a question from Jake Poor, which was like many, I'm concerned about the current nursing shortage and those who are planning to leave soon. How do you see that in relationship to the constricted consumer?
0: Yeah, I mean, certainly the the really, really desperate situation the industry finds itself in right now in terms of workforce issues, driven primarily by COVID, but also related to that, you know, the burnout from COVID, clearly the great resignation and, and the ways you might interpret that related to this, that will have at least a short-term impact on this. It feels like it's a little bit incidental is a, a terrible word to use. It's nobody's fault. That we're really going to face more of a constricted option in this regard, because you know nobody wants this situation. Everybody wants to be able to provide whatever care they can to the fullest capacity they can. The trick with the other aspects of constricted consumerism is they're intentional. So they're you know insurance companies intentionally restricting our options, or providers doing that. That's the the trickier thing to deal with. Let's all hope that within the next few years we can emerge from the crisis we have and maybe technology will help us in that regard but i also think it's fair to say this is not a short term issue in terms of workforce it's not something that once covid ends which god help us all is this year you know or hopefully we're coming out of it and omicron is the last greek letter that we're going to have to remember but even if that's the case the workforce shortage is not going to be solved in a short term but hopefully In a couple years, it will be, but that won't change the trajectory overall. That's how I'm seeing it, Chris. I don't know if you've got thoughts. Hello, healthcare is brought to you by Actium Health.
1: Healthcare leaders use Actium CRM intelligence to activate patients and drive meaningful engagement. You can make it simple to identify and predict patient needs by using AI-driven next best actions. Learn more at ActiumHealth.com. And now back to the show. So next subject, let's
0: go into constricted consumerism. All right. Imagine it's 2030, you're me, a 50-something, and this disc I'm wearing, which it's probably impossible to see with the sweater I'm wearing, but I have a little disc right here on my arm. It's doing more than just monitoring my blood sugar. It monitors 100 health metrics, from my white blood cell count to my mental state of mind. Whereas my monitor today is noticeable on my arm, think two quarters stacked on one another, my 2030 monitor will be invisible to the outside world. It will connect seamlessly and instantly to my personal mobile device, which could be a phone, a watch, glasses, whatever. Thanks to blockchain, inputs from everything from my personal monitor to my EMR to my health plan records to my refrigerator and even my Peloton are instantly added to a holistic health record available to anyone at any time I allow. Advances in genomics provides truly personalized medicine. So the biologics I use to treat my Crohn's disease are custom designed for my genetic makeup. And my insulin is engineered for my unique presentation of diabetes. 95% of the care I need is available to me wherever I'm at, whenever I need. At work, online, at the store, but mostly right in my home. My health coach makes regular house calls supported by a digital health platform that leverages AI and software-driven digital therapeutics to help manage my health on a real-time basis. Like so many others, I stopped seeing a primary care physician a few years ago. My digital twin will serve as a proxy for health issue diagnosis and potential treatment paths. As with other industries today, such as flying or checking out at the grocery store, much of my health care will be self-service, driven by my digital health support. And like so many aspects of my life in 2030, my work, my entertainment, my education, it all revolves around me, is centered on me, both in terms of where I'm physically located, but also who I am as an individual health wise. So now if you remember who Copernicus was from your astronomy class or wherever the heck we learned about him, he was the guy centuries ago who predicted the sun was the center of the universe. As we now know, he was wrong. But we love the idea of the Copernic consumer and everything revolving around them. And after all, this is a prediction, so we're fine with the irony of, of naming it after somebody who's wrong in their prediction. This is one of the more exciting predictions we have, I think, and maybe one that that is not as surprising as the others. I think most people would look at this and go, yeah, This is coming. Is it going to come by 2030? That's the question. But you can see from Dr. Rude, CEO Geisinger, there are a lot of organizations that have made this really their vision for what they're going to try to do, whether that's health system-wise, whether that's health tech, whether it's you know a service company that's supporting all of this. You can kind of see all the different elements that might be included there. One thing I think is important to note about this is we have, you know, I've spent 20 years really working within the hospital and health system space. And the idea of Uh, patient centricity and and consumer centricity has been around a long time but really that has always referenced when people come to us they come to the hospital typically or maybe they come to the clinic how do we surround them with an experience that's personalized to them this is really a different a, a fundamentally different concept where everything that's related to health is centered on the individual where he or she is where he or she sits where he or she lives and that's really a completely different model than what we've been trying to attain and and was not always the greatest success in terms of patient centricity, right? You hear a lot about dispersion of care. So this goes all the way back to Clayton Christensen, who I referenced in the book time and time again. 10 years ago, he wrote The Innovator's Prescription, which was his follow-up to The Innovator's Dilemma, all about healthcare. And he said, look, if we're going to succeed in the healthcare industry and not go bankrupt, We're going to have to see things that happened in the hospital, move to outpatient, outpatient to doctor office, doctor office to clinic, clinic to retail, retail to home, home to virtual. And we have seen that happening. And of course, COVID-19 accelerated a lot of that, uh, which is super exciting, right? So we're going to see more and more of that. Blockchain, I am not a blockchain expert. I know enough to be really dangerous, but I know the promise of it. And in, we actually have a LinkedIn group that you can go find where we're talking about all these things. And Alan Shoebridge, who some of you may know, said, how is all this going to be connected? And I think things like blockchain have the potential to take all of the data that I mentioned that narrative and bring it together. And a great way to think about this, again, is to, is to allude to the financial services industry and a personal example of mine. Like many of uh, you guys probably, I had a financial planner for forever to help me kind of particularly manage my retirement investing, but also how I save for my kids colleges, how I, you know, save for my own personal savings, all that stuff. But it was something where I would see her twice a year. It's for an hour. She could barely kind of manage all the questions I had. And then I would go away in about a year ago, two years ago, I switched all of my investments to a company called Betterment. There's plenty of platforms out there. It's online. Basically, it's just an index-driven investing model. It's not active investing. If you're like me, I'm not a day trader, just set it to the S&P 500 and go. And there are experts there to help me. I don't have a financial planner. It's about a 10th of the cost of the financial planner I was using before. And it pulls in through API and other sources all of my financial information, whether it's part of Betterment or not. So my bank accounts, my 401k, which is run through my company, my wife's 401k, my 529s. So it's all in one place. I can go on there, I can manage it myself. If I need expertise from their their people, they have the full picture of everything they need. Think about that and apply to the primary care doctor and where we could be going with healthcare similar experience to my primary care doc, right? See him twice a year, he has about 45 minutes, no way in heck he can help me with all the things I need to help with, so he touches them about five minutes each, and then off I go. Imagine that I had a better like solution for my health. And the implications of this are pretty significant, right? If that came true, we wouldn't need as many primary care docs. We might see what we call the barbell effect, which is already happening in the radiology field where AI, as an example, has really supplanted a lot of what, though not everything, radiologists can do. So radiologists are moving to one end of the spectrum or the other. They're becoming more focused and specialized, or they're becoming even broader in what they do because there's a middle ground where technology and AI can do what they do, right? So the same thing with primary care and other areas of care. So that's the Copernican consumer. Let's have at it, Chris.
1: Sure thing. Uh, Let's dig into it because I think that people have started to dig into the Copernican consumer concepts before the constricted consumer one got this question. Uh, there's, a, there's a couple I want to address, but got this one earlier from Zachary Griffin. He agrees with the idea of the Copernican consumer and spirit that we're amassing more and more data points that paint a deeper picture on who we are and, and how we should respond to that. But there's a disagreement there disagrees that uh, that would necessarily result in a, a reduction in demand for primary care. The, the vision that he laid out is what if the PCP is working alongside the person helping to parse those those additional data points, helping to use those as additional points to to guide them with their care. How does that jive with the research that you've done on the subject?
0: Yeah, I think it, it's a great point. And you know we're making a we're pretty we're making a pretty bold prediction about we will need less primary care physicians i think it could go the other way but also imagine this imagine i mean don't imagine it's already happening amazon is getting into this space right they've gone national with their virtual care they've just announced they're opening 20 kind of prototype stores around the country amazon has the scale to do what i suggested in a betterment type format for healthcare so amazon will employ primary care doctors but imagine how many more people one primary care doctor could serve through a technology-driven online platform than could happen now with the in-person situation we have with primary care. So primary care is not going away, but will we need as many? Will my relationship be different? Do I need to see the same primary care every time? That's where scale helps, right? So does it really matter to me that if I come back in with an issue that I'm talking to somebody different, if they have a full picture of my health and that's supported by technology and software? I'm not sure it really does. I mean, that kind of infers that my primary care doc today always has the full picture of me and always remembers it when I walk into his office. That's normally not happening. He's looking at his EMR to remember everything, right? Uh, you can't expect that of a, of a doctor. So I can see it both ways, but I do think there's a real potential for a reduction in need for individual primary care physicians where SCALE can help provide it even to a broader audience, maybe in a broader way.
1: So another question that we're getting is around the overall impact on access. Basically, this one came from David Perry, but it was around having this additional technology and data points available and suggestive or prescriptive technologies from other sources does that allow the PA slash nurse relationship to answer more questions and, and involve more deeply and overall reduce the cost of, of how that care and how those conversations are delivered?
0: Yeah, I 100% think so. I really do think that that's it enables the, the non-medical doctor to step forward in even greater and broader ways than they're able to now. Because the assumption here is too, is there's more data, right? So if you think about all the monitors and stuff that provide the data, There will be some kind of technology platform, AI driven or not, Chris, you could probably speak to that better than I could, but certainly that would aid in a nurse practitioner or a physician assistant or somebody else providing a lot more care than they would be able to today, potentially. So I definitely think that that is part of that future. Great,
1: and this question might get reflected back to me, but I'm I'm gonna ask it. It was around what AI solutions should be conventionally adopted in healthcare and what's on the horizon and it goes deeper, like what goals are, are meant to be really achieved with AI in healthcare and how can it be executed at a system level?
0: Yeah, so this is where I raise my flag of saying, I am not an AI expert, but somebody else here is. Do you wanna answer that? When it comes to
1: what's on the horizon and what should we be focused on, on adopting, Well, right now, within digital health, there's a whole slew of uh, various point solutions. One of them you referenced in your book, Wobot Health, like all kinds of different things that come out using various aspects of AI and things like that. But AI, to me, is so broad a term. Rather than focusing on AI, the technology itself, I really think that AI should be embedded in a lot of different processes and tools and things like that. I kind of look at it as I look at my cell phone. It wasn't advertised or sold to me as an AI device, but it uses AI to do things like enhance the pictures that I'm taking, predict test messages and things like that. So it's a matter of embedding predictions into my workflow. So the things that we should be looking for within a healthcare context, because let's say that there's uh, apps designed, for example, to help people manage their mental health or mental health challenges. Well, there's a couple of ways that that could be delivered. The one uh, company, A, could take an approach of, uh, we have these, ML, these natural language processing experts that go in and parse all this text and then like feedback a result and uh, consumers can use that. And we're trying to replace the therapist with, uh, with a cell phone app. There's one aspect, but then there's the other type of company that involves clinicians in the types of predictions that they're making that focuses on having the human in the loop and relying on the domain expertise of medical experts and also focuses on making sure and working with those same constituents to make sure that the results and uh, suggestions that they're making, predictions that they're making are ethical and valid. So what choice of technologies, what services to focus on? I would say it depends on your overall health system strategy, but working backwards into that, if there's company A, company B, company C, then what should dictate that decision? Is their focus on working with clinicians or working with end users so that these algorithms and things like that actually get adopted and used? And also their focus on whether or not they're perpetuating, one of the topics you brought was disparity dystopia. Is this vendor, is this partner, are there algorithms, are there approaches, are there problems that they're solving? actually perpetuating bias and, and perpetuating right. unethical uses of data. So the technology and path depends on strategy, but there's some very distinct, clear criteria that you can start using to be able to say, well, this approach is, is better than this other one.
0: That's great. I think you're making a great argument for your own book here, Chris. So just keep that in mind. Okay, well, uh, That's not already happening.
1: <laughs> let's partner up on that. Chris and Chris yeah. are together.
0: I like that. Yeah, yeah. Do we want to try to squeeze one more super quick? It is the one that I think is maybe the most, uh, not the most controversial, but I think one that particularly if you work for a hospital health system, you most need to hear, and that's the funnel wars.
1: I was hoping you'd let me guess because I I knew it was going to be the funnel wars.
0: So again, let me just really quickly kind of explain what we mean by the funnel. It's not too, too difficult of a concept, but it can be confusing. Think of a funnel, like a triangle, and it's an acuity funnel. So in general, people enter the healthcare system at the top of the funnel. So think urgent care, emergent care, virtual care, retail care, health even, and also sometimes primary care, right? That, that can be right up there. And then they tend to funnel down depending on their condition and their situation. So they might move down to specialty care, surgical care, tertiary care, quaternary care. Most hospitals and health systems are rightly focusing their business on the, the middle part of that funnel. Because that's where the financial model makes sense. That's where the surgeries and all of that support what they need to do financially. But what we know and what we've learned and what we know is that the top of the funnel is critical to filling the middle of the funnel because it's a funnel, right? You don't fill a funnel by trying to force things through the side you pour it through the top and this is really important because all of the entrants and players that we've been talking about for a decade they are all focused at the top of the funnel we have seen them trip and fall we have seen them stumble we have seen them come and go but they are not going away and this is really a race for the patient relationship and this quote i'm going to come back to it it's the head of brand at cvs health i think is just phenomenal in capturing why this is so important for hospitals and health systems in a, in a legacy sense. So just some things to think about. We have said for maybe a decade, Chris, hey, remember you're not just comparing your brand. You know, Consumers don't just compare your brand to other hospitals and health systems. But they compare them to their favorite brands like Apple and Amazon. Well, now they're not just comparing your brand to theirs. You're competing with those brands. Top five Fortune 500 companies, two of them are 100% healthcare. United and CVS Health, the other three, Walmart, Apple, Amazon, have all committed in a significant way to entering the healthcare space. Apple's CEO, Tim Cook, has said in an interview that when all said and done, Apple's legacy will be known first and foremost for its impact on health which is crazy when you think about what Apple's known for now. You've got all kinds of new entrants and companies from Iora to Oak Street and everything in between with venture capital behind it. You now, I mentioned before, you are now, if you're a legacy hospital health system, competing against most of your payers in some way. Optum is a great example, who definitely is focused at the top of the funnel, but even goes further. And so what we learned from these experts, and one of them said, The risk here is for systems that aren't strong enough to survive this battle is they will become what he said was downstream vendors of care. So almost B2B brands, no longer consumer facing brands, but utterly dependent on the patient relationship being referred to them from somebody else, Amazon, Apple, Walmart, CVS, you name it. It doesn't mean hospitals and health systems are going to go away because most of these folks don't want your surgery they just want the relationship at the top of the funnel because it helps them in other ways they may be financially incented if you're oak street and you've got an ma model where you need to own that relationship and you're incented to do so by united if you lose that patient relationship as a legacy hospital and health system you lose control and that may force a lot of these systems to shrink in terms of scope and size and so so when i asked russ meyer and he wasn't the only one who said this what do you think about this prediction he said the question isn't if this will happen it's where and when this will be market to market but it's going to happen it's inevitable there's not enough space at the top of the funnel for everybody somebody's going to win and he said in my experience as a brand expert who has worked with the best brands in the world in my whole career in and outside of healthcare, what I have learned is when companies try to transform, it is far easier to gain knowledge in that pursuit of transformation than it is to change culture. And when you think about the two sides in the funnel war, the legacy health systems, what do they bring to the table? Medical knowledge, expertise, physicians, they've been doing this for 20 years, all of the data, they own that. What does the, the other side bring? A culture that puts the consumer 100% in the center. Amazon, Apple, Walmart, CVS, all of those, that's just who they are. And his point is, if this is a race for the patient relationship at the top of the funnel, it's going to be easier for the one side to gain or buy the medical knowledge they need than it is for the other, and that's the legacy systems, to change their culture in a way where they are consumer-oriented. And I think that's really profound and really Scary if you're in the hospital and health system space, depending on who you are. Some systems will thrive, some are not going to thrive in the face of this. With that, just anybody who's
1: interested in discussing these predictions further or discussing strategy around where your health system might fit into this and, and patient engagement strategies, you can reach out to myself or Chris or Chris, Chris Bevelo or Chris Hempel. I'll just say LinkedIn is the easiest place to reach me. Same for Chris Bevelo So, you, so you, you can find us there. Just wanted to give a thank you on behalf of Actium Health, on behalf of Revive, and on behalf of the forum itself. Thank you very much, everybody.
0: Yeah, thank you, Chris. Thanks, everybody.
1: I know you're on the edge of your seat right now wondering who is poised to thrive and who is poised to fail based on the funnel wars and that battle for those early consumer journeys. Unfortunately, we've run out of time, but keep your ears peeled for more in-depth breakdown of the remaining predictions, the funnel wars, the rise of healthcare sectarianism, disparity dystopia. We'll be covering all of those in depth on an upcoming episode. Thanks again for tuning into Hello Healthcare. If you like what you heard, we appreciate a review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You and your feedback fuel us. This conversation is brought to you by Actium Health. To get the latest on what these healthcare leaders are saying, subscribe to our newsletter on HelloHealthcare.com or join us for our weekly sessions on LinkedIn. Thanks, and when we see you next time, hello.